Dogs Podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my co-host and cousin Josh. Josh, say hi. Made for the moment. We are all made for every moment we encounter. Either the moment makes us or we make the moment. We either are helpless in it or on top of it. The predator or the prey. We are made for that moment. Matthew McConaughey, page 141. That was your weekly Matthew McConaughey affirmation. So, just I'm just closing my eyes right now for the audience and just kind of letting that permeate and soak through my skin. That's uh, That was like a fresh ocean breeze. So uh, welcome to the Road Dogs podcast this week. I need to find out if he does the audio for his audio book of that book. Yes. Because I, he does. I, he does. He does. I'm going to have to look this up. Oh, you've heard it? <laughs> I've heard bits and pieces of it, and it's his voice, yeah. All right, let's go audible.com. Um, Maybe we could do this. Maybe we could do this for some, for some off screen. I mean, the good thing is it's just a one word book title, so I can just. Oh my god, it's on the thing. It is on. Okay, it is narrated by him. Wonderful. I will get back to you guys about this next week. This is. I might have to start listening. Josh, how are you doing this morning? Um, you know, Getting a little spicy. Do you want to talk that talk about that with the audience, or are we just going to keep it moving? Baseball is a cruel mistress. You know, that's just all I'll say. Um, she beats you, she leaves you, she kisses you, and then uh, she does it all over again. Yeah, Josh, I think this is a really good time to pull a quote from uh, Adaptation, the 2002 movie we'll be working on this week. You are not what you love, you're who you love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into that quote. I think that quote is, uh, I mean, it's obviously pretty great, but... I think the thematic purpose of it is something I want to talk about more. Well, folks, let's kick off the show here. Uh, we're talking about 2002's adaptation directed by Spike Jones, written by absolute longtime listener, friend of the show, Car- Charlie Kaufman. Josh, when did you first see this movie? So I think I first saw this movie the winter of this, this year or this last year, where you were bugging the absolute garbage out of me. Because <laughs> you were like... I'm going to put together five films for you to watch. And you were like, <laughs> All right. <laughs> did this or did this not happen? I mean, I don't think I sounded like one of the, no, no. <laughs> one of the orcs from Lord of the Rings, but I want to see sure. orc now. He's like, I'm going to get that ring. Like um, the ones with the pointy ears that look like elves, like the kind of yeah. like little troglodyte looking ones. Those ones, those ones kind of would talk like that. I think. Um, but anyways, you pestered me about and added this on the list. And so I was taking an Italian cinema class for the winter. And in between my movies of like The Bicycle Thieves and like a bunch of other movies. Now, Italian neorealism. Nice. Yeah, baby. Um, I was like, ooh, Adaptation is on HBO Max. Let's, uh, let's pop this off. Let's cross it off the list. And I watched it. I think I texted you shortly thereafter. And I, um, I had a good time. I mean, I knew about this movie for a long time. I think it's one of the movies where it's like, if you're a real cinephile, you hear of this movie, if nothing else. Mm. Um, and of course, on several podcasts I listened to, they quoted the whole like Kim Kinetti speech, um, and Sam Marsh or whatever her name is. And I don't know. It, it's um, it's a movie you know if you're into writing. I feel just because of how prominently writing is focused into it. Yeah, I would agree. Um, kind of to piggyback off of what you just said there, I think that this might be the best movie about writer's block and like creative confusion. Um, but I first saw this movie probably seven years ago. It was the summer right after I left college, actually. Um, and I went home and I was like, 
it was cool and all, but I feel like I still haven't seen enough like important movies. So it was like a summer of kind of like it's funny you said bicycle thieves, like bicycle thieves, eight and a half, breathless, like kind of like a world cinema crash course. And then I was like, all right, I've done all the big steps. Now I kind of want to take a look at some some personal faves that I just have never seen. And this was at the top of the list, mainly because of Spike Jones. And I kind of want to like like the uh, evolution sequence in the beginning of this movie. I kind of want to go back in time here to take you to a young, probably seven or eight year old Nick Shaw. Fresh face. Um, Fresh faced. Wow. Still, still pretty chubby. Still bigger than most people my age. But, uh, <laughs> but I was still out here. I was still out here giving it my all. And I want to talk about Spike Jones particularly because he kind of re- relates to that ethos of, of of giving it your all. Eight years old, I was really, really heavily into skateboarding. Like, not just into skateboarding as like a fad. Because in the late '90s early 2000s skateboarding kind of had another resurgence after the like with the tony hawk underground games the skate games um bam margera jackass which is spike jones produced and developed um so he was always kind of like i saw his name all the time on credits of things i was like spike jones who the is spike jones right it was just like (laughs) well you're making me work early in the editing process today (laughs) just don't really like when you see that name hard to put a face to it so then when you look him up and see adam spiegel uh it's just it was kind of like a shock for me but like then with the way i kind of work i feel like i'm when it comes to movies and stuff i feel like we both have this a little bit in tv shows we're a little bit of completionists like if it's somebody we really like we want to see as much as we can and i think that's just like the human nature of things so i went back and watched all those old skate videos like the blind zero days the mouse videos um Fully Flared came out when I was in probably eighth grade, which was just a phenomenon and took skating to a whole nother level as far as like visually telling a story, you know, before skates were a trick cut to the next trick cut. Like it, it, it was very kind of stringent and like kind of constricted. It wasn't a lot of movement. Um, Spike is a pioneer of line skating, which is where you do a trick and then the camera follows you through this fisheye lens as you move. It's almost like a, a, a skating dolly shot. Um, so like as far as visual sense and movement of the camera and kind of like this DIY ethos of like he edited those videos, he shot them himself, you know, it, it encouraged me to make my first couple of videos with my friends, skate videos or just like messing around in the backyard. So um he's kind of one of those people No, I've tried to find them on YouTube this week, but I couldn't find <laughs> them. So I think that they've just <laughs> they've probably gotten so few views that they just pulled them off <laughs> somehow or something. <laughs> the best part about that theory is that someone at YouTube had to watch it and be like, oh, there's only four views. Let's just, let's just pull it off the server. It's only four views. They're like 36 seconds, the ones that were actually like, quote unquote, good enough to upload. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was just kind of one of those things where like, looking back on it, I think that he's somebody who's much more influential. Like, I find his story amazing. Somebody can be shooting photos for Trans World Skateboarding Magazine and then uh, win a like, Best Original Screenplay Oscar for her. And he has like, kind of fully remained himself that way. So yeah, I just... I. I appreciate Spike not only as like a creator, but as a person and the energy he brings to the projects that he makes is it, is very skate. I feel one of my early memories of Spike Jones is that I always got confused with Spike Lee growing up, because like <laughs> tough. That's that's <laughs> there's tough. only two Spikes, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh wow, they're both famous. Um, but I think as you kind of grow older, I at least discovered him more individually. And what's crazy about Spike Jonze, like you were saying, he's credited with 107 things as directed. He's worked on music videos to this day. He's done 
documentaries, I think. He's done TV specials. He's done everything you can think of. Commercials. In a way that I don't think a lot of big-name directors do. Like, can you think of anyone else who's doing this much stuff this constantly, even just, like, small things? He did a short film for Stephen Colbert. Like... (laughs) Yeah, and brings the same energy to that that he does to something like this or being John Malkovich. Like, I don't feel like any of the things I watch by him are, like, paid gig, right? All his music videos are incredible. The work he did with um, Fatboy Slim with the Praise You video and the Weapon of Choice video with Christopher Walken, Sabotage with the Beastie Boys, um, Far Side videos that he did, Drop. Like, he's just, he's so creative and inventive. The work he did with Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth, like, and I think I was watching this thing on Vice. They have this series called Epically Latered, and they just released one on Spike, kind of funny, uh, like a week or two ago. And they were talking about um, how he never had, like, really any formal training and stuff like that. And to look at, like, some of the, some of the images and adaptation and, you know, even the music video, like, Praise You or Sabotage, it shows. Like, they don't look great. Like, you know, there's nothing about adaptation that I find absolutely beautiful i find it creative inventive and it's you know it's not ugly to look at but you know it's not really doing anything inventive but there is something like so personable and so lovable about like and and like you can feel like almost like you're putting on a warm blanket when you watch some of his movies and which is strange because the subject material would not make you feel that way Mm. and i almost wonder if that is spike like honestly bleeding through into his movies like his personality because that's what was kind of brought up. They were like, you know, whether he was working on a music video, whether he was working on a commercial, like Spike was more concerned about being a person to you first than being like a creative consultant. And I don't know. It's just that that DIY, like I said earlier, of skating and like kind of self-expression, um, I think is really, really prominent in his work. Yeah, I think her, um, which we'll get into when he gets a decade decider much, much later in the show, but... That was the first Spike Jones movie that I watched, and I was like, "Oh wow!" Like I really connect with this on a deep, personal level, in a way that I didn't think I would if I was trying to date Siri. You know, like yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, that's a beautiful movie, and I think Scarlett Johansson's voice is, you know, is is a really great character in that movie. The only comparison I could think of for Spike is you were talking that I was thinking of in terms of like who does it still is maybe Paul Thomas Anderson, because I know he does direct the high music videos here and there. Right, you know, Radiohead. He does do other work outside of just the movie directing, but there's really no one who's done it to this extent their whole career long, so consistently, so inventively, and can also do things you know so masterfully at both. Like His music videos look great, and then he'll make a great film where he not only is a writer, producer, you know, director, he just does everything so well. He's a very much a jack of you know, all trades or whatever the saying is um, in that regard. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. Um, and I wish he would direct more movies, to be honest, because I was looking through his IMDb, and maybe I just, because he's associated with the Jackass movies, I just think that he's a director of those. It's usually Jeff Tremaine, though. He's only directed four features, which is kind of frustrating, but is also a great thing at the same time. I mean, like, it's very, very odd to look at <laughs> um, because his last real movie that he directed was her. Yeah. And that's almost a decade old now. And he's still working just in very different avenues as a producer with the Jackass stuff or the BC Boy story. So I'm very curious about where his second half of his career kind of goes in that regard. Um, 
just because there is so many doors open to him that I'm very curious which ones he does decide to walk through. Yeah, and just watching some interviews with him and like seeing his his attitude throughout time, like when you watch the blind videos or like any anything really, he's a smart aleck and he's a big prankster. I mean, he helped create Jackass, so I I think that there's a there's also a kind of like same thing as skating, kind of flipping the middle finger to convention of like I'll direct a feature when I want to. Well, I think it's it's time we get into the movie discussion itself, Nick. But we you know first we got to go back to our new our new segment here. I want you to explain this movie to the audience that they haven't seen it in 60 seconds or less. Can you okay. do it? I got a timer. You let me know when you're ready. I want you to think. Get your head okay. straight. Real quick. Real quick. Real quick. Real quick. Just like Jeopardy, I have a question. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, it's called Josh Brady, so, you know. Right. Sorry. Sorry, Josh Brady. Sorry. sorry That's sorry. very rude. <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. I know you're on edge this morning, too. I should have known better. Um <laughs> Do I have to describe like plot beats or can I just like read basically as if I was summarizing the DVD cover on the back? Like you could do the latter, but I'm just going to think you're a real big poser, you know, like there's no originality. Okay. There's no invention on okay. your part. You're just like if the, the film adaptation chronicles Charlie Kaufman, you know, like, okay. I, I, you know what? I'm getting really sick of these imitations <laughs> of me. Can we please get a little more realistic with the way I sound? We've done like 12, 13 episodes of this, and you've known me for 21, 22 my whole years. Life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like my impressions of my friends to be completely off base. Like Steven, who was on Josh Street, my impression of him is like, yeah, my name's Steven. I don't know what you're trying to talk to me about. Um, and I don't know. <laughs> it makes him more of a caricature in my head, and that's why I enjoy it. But um, sure. okay. you can go oh, wherever you want with this minute. Okay. Um, here right. we go. You're on the clock. Alrighty. Charlie Kaufman is a writer in Hollywood. He just finished writing Being John Malkovich. He's worked with Spike Jones. He's frustrated in his love life, his professional life. Can't seem to get things right. He has a brother who lives with him who is also a successful screenwriter. And he's trying to adapt this book by Susan Orlean called The Orchid Thief. It delves into insanity and uh, his brother dies in the end. And you're not who you, who you, or you're not what you love, you're who you love. And... <laughs> Took you 25 seconds. <laughs> You're not wrong with what you said. I, I, I think you you missed great swaths of the film there, but I can't fault you for. You get like a B for like effort and an A for accuracy. I think. Nice, nice. I feel like it should be the other way around. Probably, yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that's that's adaptation. That's the end of the episode. Yep. Thanks for tuning in, guys. See you next week. Um. <laughs> No, but we got to go to production now and how this movie came about. And um, this is a very unique film that we've talked about because the problems in the history of making this movie became just the movie. <laughs> Which is so strange and would never happen again. And I don't want this to turn into literally the podcast where you could just title it two guys yelling at kids on their porch, like saying, get off my lawn. <laughs> but... Like, think of this movie getting made now. Like, no, nobody's buying this. This isn't getting picked up. Like, no. And also, only Charlie Kaufman's second script, written being John Malkovich. And, like, there's a comment made by his agent in the film who says, yeah, man, you're the weird guy in Hollywood. Everybody knows that's your specialty. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I'm sure they weren't blindsided that this was a unique, quote-unquote, adaptation. He took some really big swings on this one. <laughs> Every single convention you have in writing a script, you just like, ah, I don't want to listen to that. <laughs> yeah. 
So with that in mind, I think we should define what's real and what's not, because otherwise I think talking about this movie could be a little bit confusing, especially with the production stuff. So I agree. So first and foremost, Susan Orlean in the book The Orchid Thief are real. Um, in January 1995, she wrote and published an article for The New Yorker, where she still works, titled Orchid Fever, which follows John LaRoche, his greenhouse, to search for orchids and everything in between. Um, from that article did come an actual book, The Orchid Thief, obviously, uh, in 1998. This, this blew my mind in the research. Before the book was released, studios were interested in acquiring the rights. Why? Yeah. Yeah, why? Why? <laughs> I haven't... Uh... Spoiler alert! I haven't read *The Orchid Thief*. It's uh, on my on my to read list. I don't believe you. <laughs> um, yeah, even back in two thousand two, who the hell wants to watch a two hour movie about flowers? Um, it's it's very <laughs> very strange. This to me is just like you know when you're sitting on the couch and you have your phone in your hand and like something's on the TV but you're not paying attention to it. I feel like this is how that movie like slipped through the cracks and got me. Like I feel like people were just like shuffling the deck of cards. Like we got Saving Private Ryan, we got all our rom coms of the nineties. Like, I mean, let's take a chance here. I'm not really paying attention. Go on, go on, Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> my theory is that some execs saw the title and was like, "Oh my god, is this like a heist movie about stealing a flower in a bank?" And it was like, "No, it's just about this guy trying to catch a." flower in the Hakatachi or Fakatachi River or whatever. But then, you know, you might think that the conversation would have stalled out, but nope. They were like, no, let's spend serious cash on this movie, and they did. Yep. Um, Fox 2000 Pictures purchased it in 1997 and then sold it to Columbia Pictures, which again, mind-boggling that two studios were like, I will buy this. And I was just like, can we, can we buy it off of you? Um, I think, <laughs> do you think, though, real quick, do you think that this was also a time period where you could bank on a DVD sale. You could bank on like movies having like a second afterlife besides just a theatrical run. Like that was a really big stream of revenue for movies like this, and I don't know, like take your pick, really, the talented Mr. Ripley stuff like that, where DVD would almost be as exciting as the release of the movie in the theater at the time. That's true, um, but you know, to have people want to buy your movie, you have to make a good movie. And I have no idea how you make a movie <laughs> like like this movie is like I don't know how you make this move this book a movie. So like I think in theory what adaptation becomes it is possible when they finally got the script and they were like okay cool we'll do it because the second life. But on the premise <clears> itself I have such a hard time trying to understand what studios thought. <laughs> I think what we have to do for the show now is read the Orchid Thief. <laughs> I don't know if I want. To. I, like I don't know if you can get me to do that. You might have to like bribe me. <laughs> we'll have to um, we'll have to discuss that off mic. <laughs> yeah. Columbia did turn to Charlie Kaufman to write the script, and like his fictional self, he struggled to come up with ideas on how to adapt the book. I mean, hey, who wouldn't? Um, his basis for the film was an article about a guy that stole flowers. Don't really know how that is actually a movie. Kaufman has since admitted that he would wake up for weeks feeling like he couldn't adapt the book and felt stumped. I can I. What do you do with it? <laughs> I, I I hate to keep doing this, but like oh, I don't I blame him at all. I think again, not to like in. It's hard because like this movie is so self-reflexive that like the fiction and the fact really do bleed into one at some points. But I just think of that scene with the agent where we kind of like break out of Charlie's world for a little bit, and it feels a little bit more grounded in reality, like. I think that this was the Kaufman thing. It was like, let's give him something obtuse, 
strange but like new yorker you know so he can so he can relate to it as well like this is his bag of of taking something that shouldn't be a story and making it into a story like being john malkovich have you seen that no i haven't but i know the the basic gist Okay, like, I mean, the title alone tells you that that's just probably one of the strangest titles of a movie you've ever heard. Like, I think they were like <laughs> Hollywood instead of like the United States where it was like, give me your tire, give, give me your hunger, hungry and poor. They were like for Charlie Kaufman, give me your weird, give me your hard to write, and like, give me your strange. Like, I feel like they just dumped all that with him. Yeah, I mean, the best part about that title and the whole like idea of that movie is that Charlie Kaufman had to sit somewhere and be like, I want to make a movie about John Malkovich. Yeah. I also think this is a really brave choice. Like, <laughs> this could have quite quite clearly been career suicide. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There's an avenue where Charlie Kaufman probably never works again in movies and just <laughs> writes crappy television you shows for CSI. Fox. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, good for him. <laughs> hey, talent wins out. Um, and the only thing Charlie Kaufman could find himself writing was a story about himself struggling to tell a story. This leads us to the things that Kaufman actually did create for the script in the movie. He gave himself an aloof fictional brother named Donald, made Susan Orlean fall in love, and eventually snort plant dust with John LaRoche. I know we had debated this summer about winning time and how you tell the truth and what obligation you have to the truth when telling a story. And I've always found this such a, like, a crazy example of that, where <laughs> he has this character violate every journalistic ethic and also, like, get, become a drug addict. And he's supposed to be like, yeah, this is you in the movie. Thank you for your time. I'm glad we paid for your book. Yeah, I think think that there is a, a coda almost that, like, if you are adapting something, adapt, adaptation has to be faithful to the source material. And I think that that's true sometimes. I also think that you can't lose sight that movie's main purpose you want to admit it or not, or whether it works every time, is to entertain. And like we just said for the past three or four minutes here, watching John LaRoche and Susan Orlean, you know, <laughs> kind of muck around in the in the Florida Everglades for two hours, sure, it maybe you get some people in the audience, but like even then, I guarantee you, while he was writing this, they were like, is there going to be a love angle between the two of them? Because we've got to keep people <laughs> engaged. I mean, hour one, they still haven't found the orchid. Right. So, like, I think that there was probably a lot of pressure on him, like, to follow convention. And it's like a spike, much like other Charlie Kaufman films, a la Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, you know, Schenectady, Schenectady New York. Like, or um, I'm thinking of ending things. A person who's not interested in convention and is not interested in telling your story, he's interested in telling his. I mean, I think the the big difference here why this could happen is that from what little I know of The Orchid Thief itself, it is a very unsatisfying book in the sense of, like, there is no great epiphany. John LaRoche, I don't believe, has, like, a life-changing experience which fundamentally shifts his perspective. Susan Orlean is still left wanting because she couldn't find something. The book is a lot about desire and desire unachieved from, again, what little I've read and, and seen online. So I don't know how that becomes a book, and that is why... Kaufman made these embellishments, and he found that it gave him something tangible, finally, um, even if the novel was being loosely adapted. But the difference is that the things that Charlie Kaufman was experiencing with what I'm going to call Cage Kaufman um, were 100% real. He says the emotions that Charlie's going through in the film are real. 
and they reflect what I was going through when I was trying to write the script. Of course, there are specific things that have been exaggerated or changed for cinematic purposes. Um, and yeah, I think that is another great contention with this movie is that we can talk about the third act later and how much of a stretch it goes, but <laughs> the first half of this movie is very true to just life in general. Right. Well, and like, there's a reason the third act goes that way, right? Like that is <laughs> yeah. that is the complete break of reality and everything that we're going to have happen. I have this in like one of my top notes and I know that you had it too. You know, Charlie's sitting at the the restaurant with his agent. He says, I don't want it to turn into a love triangle or sex, guns, and drugs. Well, all those things happen at the end of the movie. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and that is intentional, 100%. Um, and like, again, I think is a middle finger to Hollywood. And, and like the formulaic approach to, to movies and adaptations, but like <laughs> just hilarious to me that I have uh, the quote here did those things. The quote is okay, but I'm saying it's like I don't want to cram in sex or guns or car chases, you know, or or characters, you know, learning profound life lessons or, or growing or coming back to like each other or overcoming obstacles succeed in the end. And you know, I I mean, this book isn't like that, and life isn't like that, you know, and it just isn't. And I, I feel very strongly about this. And then Charlie Kaufman made a movie where all of those things happen. Yes. And the ending of the movie, uh, <laughs> especially considering all his works, is quite hopeful. And Charlie learns something at the end. Like, it's <laughs> pound for pound, beat for beat, exactly what happens. Yeah. I mean, we'll just, we'll just talk about this now. But the way this movie also tells you that that's going to happen <laughs> with Brian Cox, um, where he's like, read a thought out to wow them. And that's exactly what happens. You mean Brian Cox as Bob McKee as Logan Roy? Yeah, well, we'll talk about Logan Roy later. Um, <laughs> Susan Orlean was less than thrilled to be depicted like this, if you can imagine. Um, she didn't want to be attached to the project for fear that it would ruin her career again. <laughs> like, like, could you imagine talking to your husband if you're her and being like, honey, Columbia bought my movie. And then, like, a year later, she gets a script, and she's like, oh, okay, interesting. Oh, that's good. What? <laughs> <laughs> Honey, I'm, I'm, I'm having sex with John LaRoche. <laughs> I'm in a loveless marriage. Why <laughs> is this man constantly masturbating? <laughs> yeah, to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've always just wondered, like, I wonder if her husband, like, either read the script or saw this movie was like, I really hope... I really hope that part about being in a, in a, like a miserable marriage is, is an embellishment. Um, she did find out that after everyone else agreed to have their names attached, um, John LaRoche, I think Valerie Thomas is also a real person, um, that she was encouraged when producer Ed Saxon said, Susan, look at Charlie. Charlie is masturbating through the whole movie using his name, which sparked Susan Orlean to relent and be like, you know what? If Charlie Kaufman's going to have his character jerk off and be a sad, pathetic, balding, miserable man. I think I could deal with, you know, the queer embellishment of me snorting coke. Right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, good call, Susan. Nice, nice humble pie from Susan. Yeah, hey, I mean, she she probably quadrupled her money and then some because I'm, uh, <laughs> everybody knows about this movie, but I don't know anybody who's read The Orchid Thief. Hey, Susan, maybe, maybe add some, some sex and some drugs to the next book. <laughs> but give, uh, and some give guns. <laughs> Mainstream man, I want to see some guns in your next book, Susan Orlean. <laughs> As for the script, Carfman didn't share it with anyone involved with the production for a long time, in part because he feared it would be ejected once he did so. 
this script was a lot like his baby. I feel like the more I read of the research of he was on the set of being John Malkovich. He was tasked with this movie. He had no idea what to do. And this was the only solace he found. And the fear was that if I show this to anyone, they'd be like, this is so stupid. You idiot. Throw this right. out. We're going to fire you. And, you know, like you said, if he got fired from this movie, I don't really care how good or successful John Malkovich was. His right. career is completely on the line. 100%. Yeah, this is a huge risk. And, like, feels naughty to write. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it probably didn't feel good <laughs> writing this, you know? You're probably confronting a lot about yourself while trying to relate slash eventually place yourself in this story. Yep. Uh, when Coffin did turn to the script, uh, Ed Saxon was pretty upset. There's a lot of moments in this research like, well, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even for 2002, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, everyone would be kind of a little peeved. He's like, hey, Charlie, we're going to pay you a million dollars. And he's like, what if I'm the movie? <laughs> okay, we open on Charlie. Uh, I'm sorry. I read The Orchid Thief like four or five times. I didn't see a character Charlie in there. No, Charlie uh, Kaufman. You're Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, Um, maybe just like we could take a couple of steps back. I'm going to give you a number for a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> But after rereading the script and input from his peers, the script did get approved, and production was fast-tracked in 2000. Or 2000. Um, the last note of production I really have is that there is a movie in 2006 that has that is titled 3 that bears distinct similarities to Donald's proposed movie. It does. <clears throat> and it's based on a book, if we want to jump back in time here, to probably about same thing, probably like 8- to 10-year-old Nick Shaw. That book is written by this guy named Ted Decker, who is a Christian novel writer. He wrote this trilogy they're called like green red black <laughs> set obsessed for a period of time read all three of them front to back <laughs> <laughs> just a lot of just a lot of relation for me i feel like this podcast is my adaptation Oof, man we're getting deep for i was gonna say there's a lot of creative bankruptcy here of like i want to title this book red this next one black this next one blue and then charlie <laughs> coffin's like i'm in my own movie beautiful we're, we're learning yeah. a lot here today together i like this um, as for the casting, this was crazy. The role of Charlie and Donald Kaufman was going to be played by Tom Hanks. <laughs> I don't think you need to even read anything more than that. I'm going to break my one swear um, for this episode. After I, I went loose on Caddyshack, I'll admit. You did um, a little bit. You, you got pretty upset during the end of Caddyshack. You know, I'm going to use two swears. Well, that's a stupid fucking movie, um, number one. <laughs> uh, and number two, Tom Hanks would be fucking terrible as Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. Can you? Yeah, I can't even imagine Tom Hanks doing anything. Has Tom Hanks ever had sex on camera? Like in a movie? Yeah, the Mr. Rogers movie. He's just plowing a bunch of girls. <laughs> I mean, there's that awkward exchange where Jenny, like, I, I don't know what happens and I don't really want to get into it. But, well, like, we yeah, know they, they copulate, you know. Yeah, they, 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 they do. Yeah, there's a child that, that's, that's born. But, like, I don't. Like want to? I didn't certainly didn't want to see Nicolas Cage doing the things he's doing in this movie, <laughs> but I really don't want to see Tom Hanks doing them. <laughs> <laughs> I can't find out what went wrong with Hanks in the studio or either way, but thank God you know it didn't happen. Like mm -hmm. Hanks does very much feel throughout his entire career like a teacher, like just like a cool, sensitive like teacher at your high school, and I think Charlie Kaufman has to be way more neurotic way more oddball and stammering and unconfident than Tom Hanks could even like pull off. 
Right. I think it would have been interesting to see, just because I don't think Tom Hanks has ever done a role quite like this. Um, but I do think it is a blessing that this did not go through. Look at the energy he brings to Big, a movie <laughs> like that. And I know that that's you know the '80s, so it's a little bit down the road here. But I think he could have been a fun Donald if he really embraced that, like a combination of playing Woody from Toy Story and yeah. like his character from Big. That, right, I that want could have movie. been kind of funny to watch. I want a movie, a different adaptation of adaptation. We're going to call it adaptation to adaptation of adaptation, where <laughs> Nicolas Cage plays Charlie and Tom Hanks plays Donald. I'm in. Let's, let's see it. Um, regardless, Nick Cage took $5 million for the role. What a, what a wow. Like, could you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Um, and wore a fat suit throughout filming to give Kaufman the heft. Yeah, I wanted to jump on this real quick, too. Um, has Nick Cage ever looked grosser in a movie? I know it's intentional, but um, it's really rough here. I think he got. A, I think he did something with his hair too, because he has the mm-hmm. big balding pattern on the top and the back. Like, I don't think he's ever looked this like. I don't think test. he's very appetizing when his head's on fire in Ghost Rider. Um, that's the only thing I could really say in rebuttal. Um, but he's he's jacked in that movie. Is he jacked? In good, I mean, he's ripped. He's in good shape. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie, so I won't disagree. But um, I saw that in theaters as children together. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it being like, "Satan's real, Marvel. <laughs> What's going on?" I want a good Ghost Rider adaptation, but that's a conversation for another podcast. One thing I wanted to talk about real quick, also, is that um, the casting, whoever was casting this for Charlie Kaufman, again, not really concerned about real life. Because Charlie Kaufman's 5'4". And he's not that ugly. Like, <laughs> he, he really, like, like man, as a, as a guy who has done a, a, his, his own fair share amount of self-loathing and, like, browbeating yourself down, like, <laughs> he really is selling himself short here in this movie. You he know? also he's still really, has a full head of hair. Yeah, he's not, like, some detestable ogre like they portray Nicolas Cage. And, like, that's obviously, you know, for the screen. But... I don't know. I I googled Charlie Kaufman the other day and like I hadn't looked at him and <laughs> hadn't looked at the boy in a long time and you know he's still looking good. He's still looking like a dog. So here's my question: If we were going for a five four Charlie Kaufman in this movie, who should have played Charlie Kaufman? You need a short king. How tall is Pacino? <laughs> oh, Al Pacino. I think Al Pacino maybe was too too old. I know, but I'm just saying. I'm saying for ridiculous purposes, just like this role ratcheting up to ten. <laughs> Charlie's at the meeting. I don't want to go to drugs. <laughs> Shaking the table. <laughs> He's just doing Vincent Hanna. You are who you love, not what loves you. Okay, Charlie. Doing God as he's dying. <laughs> <laughs> Al Pacino is 5'6". Mm-hmm. So imagine shrinking two off him and you get Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> I'm looking up famous short actors to give me some ideas here. Um... Not seeing a lot. It's mostly like Danny DeVito. Boda, Kevin Hart. That's what well, <laughs> I can't even do an impression of that. Um, here's an idea for you. I think maybe he was too old, but Robin Williams. That was going to be actually one of the other serious ones I said. But yeah, I, I, how tall was, Rob, was Robin Williams? 5'7". So he doesn't quite okay. meet a threshold, but you know, sure. he could maybe pull it off. He might be a yeah. little too old. He would definitely have the energy. Like, you know, he, he would nail that. Of like a, a of both those characters. Ooh, he's I think. thirteen years older than Nick Cage. Wow. Uh, well, maybe I take that one back. Yeah, yeah the, the the short answer is there's probably not a lot of guys. <laughs> oh, and Nicholas Cage is like six something. 
Nicholas Cage is six foot. <laughs> and he's a big six foot too. He's just very broad, yes. you know, obviously. It's, he is. I would agree. I love Nicolas Cage, but we'll get into that later. Meryl Streep was interested in the film from the beginning, which also surprised me. So um, odd. So odd. The queen yes. of, of movies. <laughs> who, who, like, you know, let's be fair here. As much as, like, she's, uh, she should be audited for all of her nominations, it's kind of like Bill Russell, right? She's, she's been playing against, like, five foot six white guys being seven foot Duncan. You know what I mean? Like, there hasn't been a lot of competition for her for a long time. It, it very that is so rude. <laughs> It ebbs and flows so much. Well, I'm just I'm I'm not trying to be that guy. No, but it's I know. Just, but you just took like forty years of actresses are just like you guys are scrubs. Well, I'm not saying they're scrubs, <laughs> but when one person wins and has like twenty nominations, it's like okay, I, I know what she is. She's LeBron. Yeah. Where like no matter what, she makes third team every year, third team all all NBA. And it's like I don't know if he really deserved it that year. It's just that he's LeBron. That's a James. good point. That's that's better than the the Bill Russell comparison. I think you're right. Yeah, like um or like Steve Nash, you know, when he would he same thing. Like he won those two MVPs. It was like, does Steve Nash need those two MVPs? I think Kobe definitely should have won one of those. You know, it's Steve Nash. We'll give him, we'll give him props for Canada. Long time listener, friend of the show. I can't wait for the time that we say that about someone famous, and they actually are a listener or friend of the show, and people just won't believe us. We're like Little Red Riding Hood. We're getting Kim Hankel. I'm convinced of it. All right, maybe on like cameo if he's on there, you know. But otherwise, <laughs> we're getting him on the cast. Okay, um, it's also worth noting this is Meryl Streep's first major role since 1999. She had been in AI and a couple small other things, but she hadn't been like a leading leading role since Music of the Heart. So for her to come back out of this, I guess, small hibernation and do adaptation is so strange. Let's just keep the sports metaphors rolling. She she pulled an MJ. She retired for like two or three years, came back and said, nah, I still run this. <laughs> she sent a uh, a note to Charlie Kaufman, just two words. I'm back. <laughs> um, as for the rest of the cast, John Turturro was approached to play John Roche. Very, very odd to think about. I don't know if he could have pulled this off as easily. <sighs> yeah. Why, though? Because I agree with you, but like, let's... Let's try to decide why. So I think it for me it's that the way John Roach is described and the way he's per, like portrayed in the film, he's like ruggedly handsome, and he has to be in the muck, in the mire, and in the gardens and stuff like that, and like smelly. Probably hasn't taken a shower in like three weeks. And John Turturro, of no fault of his own, feels too New York for that. Like he I feels agree. very like polished. And gleam and he can be the weird guy but the weird guy is never so weird that it's like this dude's off his rocker i think on the roche the character um is is not very smart and is also you know, kind of a perv right and i don't see i mean totoro did play jesus in the big lebowski but he's usually like this fast talking comedic presence in movies and i just don't see him being able to play this role slow enough which i think actually lends itself with credence to your new yorker point of just that kind of constant like moving 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 pacing like kind of thing so yeah i I think chris cooper is the right amount of like just kind of like slow for this role yeah yeah i think the other part of it is that um every single role that you can maybe compare this to for Totoro. He's very flamboyantly funny, 
where he's mm-hmm. loud. You know he's in on the joke as an actor. John expressive Roche with is, his eyes. Yes. Very like expressive with his eyes. Yeah. John LaRoche is not in on the joke. He thinks himself completely seriously. And the smartest person he knows. Yes. <laughs> he's an arrogant dude. Um, and though Chris Cooper was a contention, he considered turning the project down. His wife convinced him to accept the role, resulting in his first and only Oscar win and nomination. Um, proving once again that behind every great man is an even better and wiser woman. Mm, so true. I'm glad he won the Academy Award. He's absolutely amazing in American Beauty. I'm surprised he wasn't nominated for that. Yeah, I mean, you would think, um, because he is just dynamite in that movie. Um, some yes. other cast members we want to talk about here are cast considerations. Albert Finney, Christopher Plummer, Terrence Stamp, and Michael Caine were all considered for the role of Robert McKee. McKee personally suggested Brian Cox to filmmakers. They agreed. He got cast. Done. Yeah, I don't really like any of those other choices. Like, they're too regal. Like, yes. there's something crass and gross about the way Brian Cox talks and just about anything he's in, whether it's Super Troopers, Succession, or this. <laughs> like, you need that kind of, like, beratement personality. I don't, I don't think it works with Michael Caine. He's too, like I said, regal and, like, proper. Christopher Plummer, I think it turns too epic. And, like, he's mm. giving a speech about, like, Charlie, this is your life. You must take People it People die every day on those streets, you know? <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. It doesn't feel berating enough. Exactly. I'm trying to imagine Michael Caine of just, like... <laughs> I once saw a screenplay, size of a diamond. It was, a, it was the size of a football. <laughs> <laughs> the size of a tangerine in this script is huge. Charlie, you don't understand that. Some men, some men just want to watch the screenplay band. <laughs> so thank God Brian Cox is here. I, I can't wait to have the Brian Cox discussion because I'm really excited about it. But um, <laughs> As for the box office, Adaptation was released on December 6, 2002. It grows $32.8 million on a $19 million budget. Pretty good. That's... And that is the early 2000s thing that we were talking about. This movie does not make $32.8 million now. Like, <laughs> this movie doesn't even get friggin' made. And also the release date. This released on December 6th. Do you think they were like, this is our Oscar movie? Insane for them to put that push yeah. behind that. Like, that is wild. I mean, the 2000s were a time in movies um, where it's just like, I'll see it. I'm bored. Like, there's nothing else to do. There's no well, I think to entertain you. Yeah, that's true, but I also think directors and writers were just, like, held in a little more reverence. Like, new Spike Jones, Charlie Kaufman movie, like, that meant something a little bit more now. Like, you know, Charlie Kaufman struggled to get funding for I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and it released on Netflix. And I feel like right. it came and went, and that's a good movie. Also yeah. an adaptation of a book. Adaptation, baby. Um, adaptation was released alongside Analyze That, Empire, and Equilibrium. During its first week of theaters, audience could have seen all of the above. You ready for this? Ready. Die Another Day, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, The Santa Claus 2, The Ring, mm-hmm. Eight Mile, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, Nick's favorite movie of all time, Frida, <laughs> Bowling for Columbine, Jackass the Movie, another Spike, and Punch mm-hmm. Drunk Love. Spike double dipping at the box office. What a good year. It was a good year for Spike <laughs> in 2002, baby. Let me tell you, Daddy got a new Porsche that year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, I don't really have much to say on this other than like I think going from adaptation to punch drunk love is maybe just me. Like I think if you combine those two movies into one little baby, it might just be me. Of like I think it'd be a good double feature. The anxious writer who doesn't believe in himself mostly, and then this person who's very sweet but has a hair trigger temper, is I think 
<laughs> I think it embodies a lot of uh, us in general. Would we, I would agree. I think it embod- embodies a lot of the American male at that time, mm. and kind of like the way the world was going. Um, just, yeah, a lot of turmoil. We, I we can't can, wait uh, for the Punch Drunk Love cast. I'm, I'm very excited we'll get there eventually. Well, we will. I'm excited to talk that too. And have we haven't done any PTA yet, have we? No, I'm holding them off. You know, I, I'm like. I mean, there's two people on the podcast. Like, it's not <laughs> you just holding them off, dude. Like. <laughs> no, I actually go into your brain. I put a little implant in there. Whenever you think about Paul Thomas okay. Anderson, I have the implant. Let me know, and then I, I switch it off your head. This is getting very Kaufman-esque. Dreaming of Paul Thomas Anderson. Dreaming of PTA. I think that's I the next script I'm going to write. <laughs> <laughs> Bowling for PTA with Michael, with, uh, Michael Moore and PTA. In my head. Yep. All right. <laughs> Moving on. Um, on to the actual conversation about the movie. Um, first question for you, Nick. Did Chris Cooper deserve to win the Oscar? I, I think so. I mean, it's John C. Riley, Christopher Walken, Paul Newman. Wow, Paul Newman's really good in Pro to Perdition. And Ed Harris for the hours. He's thinking now. He's thinking about it. He's twisted and turning about Chris Cooper. I've watched, I've watched Adaptation so much more than Road to Perdition, which is weird. Because Road to Perdition is like shop porn, basically. Ah, I got to go Chris Cooper. I got to. It's, it's just so yeah. great of a performance. And he didn't win and didn't even get nominated for American Beauty. So I got to give it to my dog. Longtime listener, friend of the show, Chris Cooper. That's fair. The only thing I would say maybe, and I haven't seen Chicago... We get John C. Ryland Oscar at least once in his life, you know. I agree. Is has the man ever been bad in anything? He no. Might have been in some really crappy movies. Holmes He's and never Watson. Bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would. Has John C. Riley ever been nominated? I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but yeah, for Chicago. Oh God! <laughs> we just talked about it, man. This is so embarrassing. But I think this that's his only so nom. Embarrassing. <laughs> you can just edit it out. Um, number two, should Nicholas Cage have won the Oscar? This is going to take a little bit more time, and I really want to talk this through. That's um, fine. The candidates were Adrian Brody, Brody, the pianist, Michael Kine, the quiet American, <laughs> odd choice for a title about a movie with a British man, uh, Daniel yeah. Day-Lewis, Gangs of New York, and Jack Nicholson about Schmidt. Okay. I'm super excited to talk about this. Are you ready? hmm Okay. Adrian Brody is the youngest man to ever win best actor not taking that away uh the pianist is a gutting movie i've seen it twice and both times like i need a nap afterwards <laughs> it's just an absolutely moving performance <laughs> daniel day lewis is exceptional in gangs of new york i think that movie is too flawed to fully work for me i think it's probably one of the weaker scorsese films if we were kind of going through the list which i do want to do at some point on this cast but he's absolutely phenomenal in it. Um, it's funny that we're talking about DDL here because uh, I was impersonating that scene with the rabbit the other day. I don't know if you've seen Gangs in New York, but I, uh, my bo- I was pretending to cry and then be serious with my boss. <laughs> Poor little rabbit. He didn't get it, but uh, much like you didn't hear on this podcast. And I'm not giving Jack Nicholson another goddamn Academy Award. Like, that's Come on, he got gets the Lakers. He got the 2000s <laughs> Lakers. It's fine. He can, he can live. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Nicholas Cage has won one at this point. So no, I'm glad Adrian Brody won. That's history. So I'm not, I'm not messing with history. I haven't seen The Piano, so I'm not going to make a grand proclamation. The only thing I would say is that Nick Cage is so good in this movie and unlike all the actors on this list, he's playing two different people 
distinctly different, not even like shades of the same person. And he brings them both to life with such earnestness and believability that I think, and we'll talk about this later, but I think it's the best Cage has ever been in some way. Mm. Um, just because he has to... Do, every, this movie relies on him completely, by the way, of not only Charlie and Donald, but the narration. It's all structured around him and his worries and his thoughts. And that doesn't mean that Adrian Brody doesn't have that same experience with the pianist. He probably does, even though I haven't seen it. Um, he, he does pretty much. I mean, he's the only one left behind, but continue. Yes. Um, but I just think Cage, I would love to know what the vote breakdown was for this, I guess, if, if we could maybe. Um, they never release it. They don't. Cowards. It's, it's, it's yeah, they, they cowards. never release them to the public. Um, well, we're never getting nominated. But I just think the thing for me is like, yes, Nicolas Cage is incredible in this movie. He's in every single frame outside of like. Susan. Susan Orlean, yeah, interludes there. And he's relying, they're relying on him to carry the narrative. But when he was against Michael Caine, Daniel Day Lewis, Jack Nicholson, and Adrian Brody in The Pianist, which is just a movie made for the Oscars, I don't really think he stand, stood a chance, especially after he already won Best Actor So Young. Um, I think now, looking back on history, and we don't need to have the Roman Polanski discussion, I think a lot of people would have rather given it to him or Daniel Day or Nicholson. Yes. You no. Know? So uh, that we don't need to get really deep into, but I think that I think that the breakdown was was the right thing here. I'd love to see Nicolas Cage do more work like this, like more work that I feel is geared towards Academy nominations, which is kind of like a weird statement to make. But on the inverse, what I love about him is he is never interested in that. He's sometimes in good. He's sometimes good, sometimes bad, but never not interesting. I think that that just sums him up perfectly. Say, so who knows? We got the cage of sauce is a, is a board, you know. It's it's happening. So is that happening? It's ha- I mean, after after the um, God, what is it called? The unbearable weight out. of massive talent. Yes, I think the the world and the internet is back in love with Nick Cage. I feel like Nick Cage is kind of like like um, kind of like. I don't think he needs the love. I think he's somebody who just comes and goes. He he comes and goes. Like there are moments when he's hot. There's moments when he's cool. There's moments when he's like describing himself as a shaman. Like he he is so not, like a Brad Pitt interested in deconstructing fame than being famous, which is also weird because he comes from more, probably one of the biggest cinematic families in history. <laughs> but like I think he has really spent better part of what. 30, 40 years in the industry at this point. Like, in like, yeah, I'll be in National Treasure, but I also want to be in Ghost Rider. Like, yeah, I'll be in Adaptation, but (laughs) I'm going to be the badass in Con Air and Face Off. So there is this really interesting jack-of-all-trade things where it's like some work like Leaving Las Vegas that's really beautiful and powerful and haunting. And then he's in a movie like Mandy where he's just bat... Crazy Nicolas Cage. So I really appreciate the fact that he is so willing to take chances. And I think that's what makes him a great actor. I think a director that I want to see him work with on that kind of train of thought is Yorgos Lanthimos from The Lobster Mm. and a couple other things where he does weird very, very well and is not really interested in what you expect of him. So I would love to see Cage work with some interesting artists. I think... 
I can't believe I just thought of this, but I would have loved to see the lighthouse with him in the Willem Dafoe role. Just because I'd be curious um, what he would have done with something like that. And I want to see him get more stuff on the fringes, but, you know. Yeah, I love that, actually. That is a really good pull for Thank him you. to be in the lighthouse. I like that. That's fun. I'm a wiki man. <laughs> Whoa, I'm, I love shortbread, so I wanted to look like a tin of shortbread. <laughs> um, question number three. Is Robert McKee's Brian Cox audition for Logan Roy? I watched this movie and I was like, he's just doing Logan Roy. There is no difference between this guy, the guy <laughs> in Super Troopers, and, and Logan Roy. Like, none. None whatsoever. Like, you know what it reminds me of? He is he has slowly become like a Lee Emroy or Lee Emery who was in Full Metal Jacket and played the drill sergeant. He's just the guy who yells <laughs> at people and everything now. Like, that's just what I think of Brian Cox as. <laughs> It's like it's like a three point specialist, you know. He's I mean, a Joe the, Harris. <laughs> the best thing about this is that, like, of course, Robert McKee's actually British, but in a lot of movies, though, Brian Cox not do his accent. But in this movie, like, yo, be yourself, Brian, and he does. He just is unleashing it all. <laughs> like, they're like, are you fucking crazy? There's not real stories. It's just so perfect. I want to get. Boy. I want to get, I have no use for it, <laughs> into our personal lexicon. I just want to get that going. <laughs> Why the fuck are you bothering me with your movie? <laughs> I've got no use for it. If and... you legitimately take his audio lines from this movie, you could fit them in an episode of Succession. A thousand percent. A hundred percent, yes. And I, I, if I ever get the chance to speak to Jesse Armstrong and the crew behind Succession... I gotta be like, yo, you saw Adaptation, you're like, that's Logan. Is, uh, is Succession Season 4 the last season? No idea. Um, that's the that's off-network off discussion. You know? Off-network discussion. Question 4. Why did Charlie Kaufman write several scenes in which Charlie Kaufman jerks off? Yeah, the one thing finish. in this movie... <laughs> <laughs> the one thing in this movie where I was like, I love to see people and artists bear their souls, but like, maybe we could have kept that part <laughs> private and behind closed doors. Um, the only one that I find like pertinent to the story is the one with Susan, because then it launches his like pursuit of her in New York, and then the movie goes off the rails for the third act. The rest of them just feel like they're as like to show that Charlie finds women. It's almost like objectified, like you, you know what I mean. They're like an object of his like. Sexual Desire, fascination, yeah. yeah, and then like that changes at the end when he tells, forget the character's name, uh, he loves her. Yes, uh, because her name as well. He stops seeing women as objects and as people, but like, I find this to be the part where I dislike Charlie a little bit more as a character in this movie. It just feels out of place and gross and unnecessary. The but, gender yeah. politics of this movie are very strange, especially when you watch them with a the twenty twenty two lens. Yes. The way that Judy Greer's character, he's very much projecting this whole mythos onto her. And then the scene where she shows him her boobs. Yeah. Well, even Eternal Sunshine, even, and it's so dreamlike and like almost feels like, uh, like Victorian, the way the sun is like shining on them. It like feels like it's like picaresque, yeah. but like <laughs> so strange. But the other thing to that too, I would say is this isn't like a, 
first time theme with him when it comes to that. Like Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, that movie's really flawed with Kate Winslet's character in the way that Jim Carrey pursues her and their relationship works. Like he has this manic like vision of women that I sometimes don't really find accurate or aligned with, but yeah. They they almost seem to be placeholders in his stories more than fully developed characters. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And even the way Valerie is in this movie is just to serve the plot. She's not a character. She's just yeah. like, here's this movie we want to write. And then here's a scene where I'm telling Nick Cage he's a genius in bed in like a very like scantily clad t-shirt, um, which is odd. Um, the next question is yours. You came up with this. Yes, I did. Uh, with the movie released like Bros, Ghostbusters Afterlife, Tusk, Homecoming, Two Dope Queens. The movies and shows that are based on podcasts have characters as podcasters, whatever it may be. Uh, Josh, when do the Road Dogs get their first feature and hit the silver screen? Do you want like a year? Like, do you want like, what do you want here? I want everything. I want, I mean, I think we just came up with the idea. Dreaming PTA, I think that's a great idea. We hit the (laughs) ground running with that. Um, Starring you and I, I mean, we're going to have to do a lot of talking to get PTA to even speak with us, but... We'll have to get rid of that restraining order he has on us first and foremost, and then maybe get through his gates, you know, climb hey, his fence. Hey, Paul. Oh, no, man. Come on. Put the cell phone down, man. Don't do this again. <laughs> we just love you, man. I just really, really love you. When? Probably never. I'll be honest with you. I'm just going to call this out here. Um, I think the highest this podcast ever has for ceiling is like we're like doing commentary tracks for movie studio about i don't know i don't know where movies are going but like so mystery science theater 3000 yeah we just get bought out by someone and we become soulless dregs and the show gets worse and worse throughout the years um maybe we do a live show or two in the meantime keep things interesting on this topic though who would you cast as yourself i know who i'd cast to play me but you know would i cast as my to play myself yeah who do you want to play in you oh that's easy dwayne the rock johnson <laughs> i almost made that joke because I thought you take this seriously, and um, you just nah, didn't. <laughs> okay, who do I want me to play? Jesse Plemons. I to say that too. <laughs> Were you? Yes. Nice, nice, big, broad, beefy boy. I love it. But like, Texan. he's got to add like four. Well, I guess if if Kaufman could be five four and have Nick Cage playing with six foot, you six four could have like five ten. Jesse Plemons. He five ten. He's a, he's shorter than you think. I th- I want to say. Okay, maybe we'll have Timothy Chalamet play me then. <laughs> All right. Um, I want Cooper Hoffman. You know, I, ever since I saw Chris Pizza, I was like, this kid actually kind of looks like me. And um, okay, you know, I could see that. That could work. I seen some stubble on him, and I went, "What a handsome young boy!" Because he looks like me. So, also looks hauntingly like his father. Yeah. Um, yeah. Way to bring the mood down. Uh, sorry, question, sorry. whatever we're on now. Best movie about screenwriters slash writers. Um, you mentioned that we have this. Sunset Boulevard, Barton Fink, Misery, uh, Capote, The Disaster Artist, etc. Yeah, I think that <laughs> Hollywood has this very self-masturbatory love affair with writing about themselves and directing movies about themselves. So um, I just wanted to like kind of pick your brain on this. I don't know how many of these you've seen, but like, I think Barton Fink is a great <laughs> depiction of like what Hollywood does to, to screenwriters. Um, Sunset Boulevard is a classic, but it's also kind of more about being a noir than writing. So I would probably say this is literally the best movie about creative 
fusion writer's block. Also, it's like interested into more of an existential story about life and love and change. But yeah, I, I, I think that there's like a really strong pool of movies that are, are about writers, screenwriters that are really interesting. Surprised you didn't include Mank on this, this list. Um, I wanted to, but I also also didn't know if you had seen Mank, and I thought that you had might have, might have seen know. most of these. Yeah, um, I don't really have a good answer for this, you know. Honestly, of like, <laughs> it's fine. That's fine. I understand. You haven't seen a lot of these. The Mets lost last night. It's 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 tough. Um, yeah, I I kind of want to. Maybe the player does that count? Ooh, okay. I'll take the player. It's a movie oh. about movies. Yeah, we should do that on the cast. Um, I did want to talk about this though, the way that you mentioned the way it encapsulates writers, um, because we are both aspiring writers to an degree. So much of the writing process that I feel like Hollywood neglects is the struggle of it. And not just of like, oh, I can't think of anything, but the struggle with yourself to just sit down and write, you know, mm-hmm. like. She could a banana nut muffin. <laughs> yeah. so After sitting my... down for two minutes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so much of my writing process is like, all right, here we go. Stop being such a fat, lazy, stupid, ugly piece of Get out of that computer and make magic happen. You want to be a writer, be a writer. But then you start to slowly invent reasons why you shouldn't be writing right now, where it's like, oh, man, I barely exercise. It's like 1.30 in the afternoon. I should eat long. You know, I, I don't want to write and not stop to eat because it'll break my flow. Like, like maybe there's something on YouTube to bide my time and feel like I'm hungry. Let's look on YouTube. And then you just get stuck in this loop. And I'm glad that this movie encapsulates that so well because... It is a pivotal part of being a writer is like trying to convince yourself to write. Mm. I would totally agree. I am actually in the stage that Donald is, Donald is or bleh, Charlie is in <laughs> in this movie right now, personally in my life. Like I cannot get myself to sit down and write more than a page. It's so frustrating and like watching this movie at this time was perfect for me. I'm hoping that it does something and like gets the juices flowing, but because it is such a creative, inventive movie. Charlie Kaufman, outside, please. <laughs> outside of just being really great to watch and like having something more to say, it is it is a great movie about writing and creative struggle. So yeah, I, I feel the pain of Charlie. Maybe this is a question more for the audience to answer. But which one of us is Charlie and which one is Donald? Okay, I got this for you. Okay, um, I'm going to give the audience a little bit of uh, a little bit of knowledge about you. I don't like this. Um, if I had to describe your living conditions wherever you live, I would use one word and one word only, and that's sparse. Mm-hmm. Charlie lives in a house where he sleeps on a mattress on the floor. Um, when he talks, it echoes throughout the house, so you can hear that there's no furniture or anything to soften the uh, acoustics <laughs> in the apartment. That is you to a T, my friend. Um, yeah. I don't know about your masturbatory <laughs> habits or writing All right, schedule. well, let's just you know, leave that alone. <laughs> but, but when it comes to as far as, like, style and stuff like that uh charlie and i think i'm more dumb downs yeah yeah i'm like hey man it'll work itself out like we'll figure it out (laughs) (laughs) i would like to think of myself as maybe a little bit deeper than donald in the sense that uh we haven't written any (laughs) i haven't written any car slash horse chases yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's like maybe he's a genius (laughs) it's like technology versus animal like technology versus animal. <laughs> um, while we're on that quote, I just want to say real quick, Maggie Gyllenhaal really good in this movie. She's got like a bit. She's great bit in part. everything too. She's yeah. great in everything. Yeah, she's got a little bit part, but she's so recognizable in it. Yeah, anybody else would have turned those lines into nothing. Like, 
there's another person who's gone on to direct and has branched out besides just, you know, hey, you're a leading woman, you know? So good for yeah. her. Yeah, I, I I think that's right in the money. I think I dress like Charlie. Um, you are very relaxed like Donald. I think you, you smoke the hajish um, like Donald probably does. <laughs> Uh, I will will neither confirm nor Sheesh, deny. What is it? How do you, what is what is the sling there? Never heard of it. All right, cool. Um, on to our final award before we start talking to more like a literary prose. Um, Colonel Tom Parker Award for for best or oddest overacting or just odd acting choice. Hard hard picks here. I don't. I don't. I. I again. I kind of have some pushback. You've done this a couple times now with the Colonel Tom Parker Award. Do you Streets just meltdown like is. I like it, but the, it's. I don't think it works for every movie. Like Streep's meltdown is fantastic. I I laugh my ass off every time that happens. It's so funny. And Brian Cox endlessly <laughs> shouting is necessary to the movie because that's who Bob McKee was or is. And I just didn't notice the girl sitting next to Streep at the dinner. Yeah, I want to talk. And, about and that's her. probably the point. <laughs> <laughs> so this is my my nomination. This is who I'm giving it to since you're just out on this today. Um, yeah. In the dinner scene where. Um, Meryl Streep is in New York with her husband and they're having this dinner party. It's like raucous. They've got like these extras who are all pitching into the conversation and it's pretty funny. And then there's this girl sitting next to Meryl Streep on her right. And I was watching this movie again, partly yesterday and I was watching the scene again. And this girl is just sitting there saying nothing. Like she's just smiling. Like, Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. But like she has nothing to add to the conversation. She's just sitting there right in the middle of the frame in a very lively, funny scene. And she just does nothing. Like, I don't, I, maybe the director, Spike Jones, is like, you don't deserve a line. That's possible. Um, but I just, you know, I thought she should have, she should have given us a little more than just like a, a statue. Fair enough. I, uh, I only watched this once because I'd watched it recently before we did the cast. So um, sometimes I'll, I'll watch a movie we do two times and then like maybe skim through it again just before to brush up on some things. I'm going to have to go back and watch that scene a couple times and see if I pick up on some stuff. I might want to give it to John Cusack who just like waves. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> just like tough ponytail, you know, yeah. and being John Malkovich's set. Yeah. Um, onto the serious stuff of this movie and, and trying to be professionals here. I feel like we're flying through this, but that's all right. My first You're question good. is, is this a movie about shame? Um, I think shame is a theme, but I don't think that this whole entire movie is about shame, but I could be convinced. Okay. So here's what I'm going to, this is another Ted talk for the week. This with it. I think when you look at every single character for the most part, there's a sense of shame that permeates all of their actions and their motivations. Well, Roche is ashamed of the car accident that killed his mother and his uncle. He's never really let people back into his life since then. He's cut himself off for the most part emotionally from people and just is out. Um, Charlie is obviously ashamed of his physical and mental status. He continually admits he's bald, fat, repulsive, and stupid. <laughs> um, we see him in literal states of shame masturbating, lambasting himself mentally and failing at his profession. Susan is ashamed of her lack of passion she feels in her life. Her marriage, even though it's strong and surviving, it's no longer sparking that shame that she once did to the point she can't even bring herself to separate from her husband. And I don't want to say shame is in like, they should be ashamed. It's almost like they're ashamed of their own shame. Where Meryl Streep, especially, who really captivated me on this watch, um, is lambasting herself for like 
why do I feel nothing? Like everything should be fine and yet I feel nothing and what's wrong with me? And how come I feel like I need something more? And is there something wrong with me? How do I fix that? Um, and I think that permeates a lot of things about this movie. I think you've made some solid points, and I agree with you. I almost read those things almost as more existential dread than mm. I do shame. Just hearing like lines where Meryl Streep talks about like kind of trying to relate with Chris Cooper when he explains to him like, you know, I I killed my mom in a car crash and stuff like that. She says it's a free pass, and she has no shame in her voice when she's talking about it. She's like, nobody would blame you for wanting to start over. It's like a free pass. I would divorce my husband too if if he put me in a coma. A yeah. car crash. It's not told from a place of shame. It's told from a place of like longing, existential longing of like something bigger than yourself. So I think I read it more like that than shame. Um, I think that shame is definitely a theme throughout the movie. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I just kind of struck by how much that is. But one of the greater motifs that I actually just noticed today, I was doing some prep work, you know, I was like, I put in the work. Um, <laughs> Is the Aurora Boris? Did mm. you did you notice this at all? Or, or um, in the nature of the movie, or do I know what Aurora Boris is? I assume, I assume you know what Aurora Boris is, but I mean, like in the nature of the film, like did you pick up on I what I perceive to be its greater meaning? Yeah, I I agree, and I've read what you had here in the document. I think that it's probably accurate. Um, I think the thing for me is Charlie changes too much in the end for me. Mm. To fully agree with that, right? Like, out of all of Charlie Kaufman's movies, I think this might have the sweetest ending. Like, it, it is a little tender. Um, after kind of a whole movie or two hours of bumbling and stumbling his way through life, Charlie kind of starts to get a grasp and takes control of his own life. Um, but I definitely think in the first half, is it's definitely more prevalent. And he says it in the first half of the movie as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just for like context for the audience of the Aurora Boris is the snake that Charlie mentions that continually eats itself. I viewed that as a commentary on Charlie himself of, you know, he is beating himself down the entire movie with the continual lines of like, I'm fat, I'm bald, I'm repulsive, why didn't I kiss her, I'm sweating, oh god, she can see me sweating. And that the problem with Charlie isn't that like a little pixie with sprinkled magical dust, which is why he can't write. It's that he's eaten away so much of his own self-confidence that he doesn't think anything he has is good anymore. Um, And he's literally eaten himself. And I think that that is Aurora Boris. And that only changes, kind of like you said, with Charlie is the self-loathing from Don... Or the scene about Sarah Marsh and Kim Kinetti. And I think that quote is memorable in and of itself. But this is kind of what I wanted to talk about. You are who you love, not what loves you. The only argument I would push back against you with is that in that moment, Charlie realizes that the whole movie is about his whole thoughts and how other people perceive him, and that when he realizes that he could, should just be happy with who he is, or that if he could focus on his feelings for people instead of their feelings for him, he could be more than just the fat, bald, repulsive sweat machine. You know, he can find himself again and move on and have that conviction. So I would say that I think the change is a little forced, and I think that's part of the whole commentary on the third act structure in, in movies on the whole. Um, but I do want to say that I, I do think it makes some sense in that regard of once he focuses on instead of his own shame and knocking himself down, he can proclaim himself. Right. And just kind of talking about this and thinking of Ouroboros and how it's like eats itself, things like that. 
you could almost view Charlie and Donald as two characters or as one character, mm. right? Two different halves. The desires to be loved in like critical appraisal, have the hot girlfriend in Donald, also trying to be true to yourself and like human qualities and like why am I here? How do I become a better person? And not all of those things. I I, I feel like those two characters, now that we're talking about this a little bit more, are a little bit more looking in the mirror than I first thought <clears throat> first thought. I mean, I definitely agree with that. I think <laughs> there's a reason why Charlie Kaufman gave himself a fictional twin brother. Right. And I think it is to express the more different side of emotions that you feel as a person in the sense of you sometimes do feel like you're two different people. Right. And I think Donald is a perfect way to encapsulate that. Yeah. I, I think that, I think that uh, the first half is definitely a little bit more about those things in the second half. Mm-hmm. Um, empty your notebook. Let's hear it. I, I know you got some some material here for me. What do you mean? <laughs> well, no, you told me. You texted me. You like I got a lot of notes on this movie, and I was I, I was curious to hear some of yours. Okay, let's. What do I have here? Oh yeah, here's a question for you. This is not they really a serious me. serious one. Uh, does Amelia just have a love of schlubs? I mean, by all means, you love to see it, especially as kind of a bigger dude like we've talked about, but it is tough. He's got glasses, you know, he's balding on the top. He's a little pudgy, much like Charlie. Um, she's a friend for a charity case, you know. I, I don't know. Is this her thing? Like, she takes, like, dilapidated men and builds them back up, or is she just a chubby chaser? There's nothing wrong with either, first and foremost. No, not, not at all. We do not discriminate... Yeah. Against any sex, race, <laughs> body form, or creed here at the Road Dogs podcast, I'm just That's, I'm just spitballing here. No, I I, I want to talk about this because you, you're making me think, um, and I've come to the conclusion Amelia just isn't cool. Um, she's a viol like I don't mean to say like she's a bad person, but she's like a violinist. She strikes me as like the type of girl that went to band camp a lot, wasn't really yeah. hit with the guys. And, the accent, you know, yeah, she's British. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> No, um, I think that's probably what what makes her so much more attractive. <laughs> it's the only thing she's got going for her. Um, In their eyes. Again, I'm speaking as yes. Charlie. Myself. Um, and I think that there's a reason why she's more interested in guys who are more intellectual than jocks. Not to say that one can't be the other. But I do think that, especially in 2000s culture, there was that idea that one was synonymous with the other. You couldn't be hot and smart, and you had to be right. ugly and intelligent, or at least like imperfect. So it's it actually, makes sense that way. That's a really good point. Yeah, but Amelia, um, you know, I don't know. She didn't. I also think she's problematic of the Charlie Kaufman thing we were talking about earlier, of just a main character as a female in his work that is just really not given any depth or things to do besides be an object of fascination for Nicolas Cage's character. I so, love you, Amelia. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't I kiss her? Um, what's next? I'm going to I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop right now. Um, some other stuff. We already talked about the movie making movie complex in Hollywood. Which ones are kind of in the Hall of Fame? Those are just some of the ones that we had mentioned earlier. I really like Misery a lot. <laughs> I love Kathy Bates in that movie. <laughs> well, that's just too bad, Mister Man. I want to see a movie where it's it's Charlie Kaufman played by Nick Cage and Kathy Bates in a room together. Wow. That's a wild movie, and I would be there opening day. Um, what are some things? 
Oh, the other thing I want to talk about is the violence in this movie, and I feel mm. like it connects kind of deeper as we as we do some more serious talk here. Um, the violence in this movie is so like shocking and such a gut punch. The two car crashes are probably two of the most violent I've ever seen on screen. There's no like music. There's no slow motion. There's no cross cutting between the two cars like before the impact. It's just sudden and over. The alligator attack on LaRoche is really yeah. violent and looks like it's something that's from a documentary or Faces of Death. doesn't look like it's from a Hollywood movie. I think that's kind of saying something about like this movie has some evolution sequences in it. It has like it's saying something about like why we're here and who we are. I think that the violence of that is to show how violent and forceful nature is. You know, we have a hurricane going on in Florida right now, you know of luck to everybody over in in florida i hope everything's okay but like life is not you know car chase where you then at the end get in a car accident or life Mm -hmm. isn't dodging an alligator and then getting caught by the foot and dragged in (laughs) at the end while somebody tries to save you it's violent and it's sudden and it's over like it's finite like there's no there's no talking about it so i don't know if that was an intentional choice but I found myself connecting a lot more of like our very rudimentary human impulses and like human nature this time around watching this movie than I didn't past. Yeah, I I would agree with you on that note of I do think when things happen in this movie, it I think the third act is very fantastical, as we said, and it does feel like it goes off the rails. But Which Eternal it, Sunshine of the Spotless Mind does a little bit too. Yes. I don't know if but you've it, seen that, it but... brings it back to reality, yeah. it brings you back with a hammer um, in a lot of ways. And I think even the ending of this movie and the dialogue is really sharp. I mean, we'll get to it in, in best quotes, but when Roche dies and Susan goes, you fat piece of shit, he's dead. <laughs> and Charlie isn't like, I'm. he's like, shut up. She's like, you loser, you ruined my life, you fat fuck. And he goes, fuck you, lady. You're just an only old, desperate, pathetic drug addict. Like, it's incredibly harsh um, with not just the actions, but the dialogue at the very end. And I do think that is a very intentional of this movie is very, you know, weird. But for the characters, it's also very real. And they remind you of the consequences of their actions verbally and, you know, action-wise. Yeah. It handles two really big emotional swings like that like something so fantastical and then something so immersed in realism really well because like that could be a choice that completely takes you out of the movie um just like I, we we're talking about some other things here i just want to throw this out here charlie orders a slice of key lime pie and in my own heart right there all right noted just, um just wanted to say that I, I mean you know that key lime pie is my favorite pie don't act like you don't you know, I, I, I mean, maybe this makes me sound bad, but I just didn't really think of that and be like, "Wow, man, man after Nick's art, you know." It was just like, I mean, I, I, I wish you had a little bit, but okay. I'll try and start hearing out every time I think of key lime pie. I'll text you right away. Well, key like, lime pie, pie, like cheeseburgers. Anytime you hear like something that like, like that in a movie, <laughs> beloved foods, just yeah. text me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you: Is this the peak of Nick Cage's powers? Um, and if nothing else, do you think adaptation, and we can talk about this in Decade Decider too, but is adaptation the exclamation part or exclamation mark to one part of his career followed by the question? Uh, this is a tough question to unpack because they're, 
again, we're going to be doing Decade Decider, so I don't want to go, like, too deep. But um, for this, his three movies are The Rock, Con Air, Face Off, and then Adaptation. Now, to me, Adaptation is a stark choice to try to get back to something a little more tangible and real. So I don't know if I can call it the peak of his powers. Mm. Because those three movies are kind of... <laughs> Blockbusters, yeah. Fun, yeah, I guess. So I guess if you want to say maybe peak power bankability, because then after adaptation, he does Matchstick Men and then goes National Treasure. Mm-hmm. So maybe like as far as like bankability, but I don't know. He's such an oddity to talk about i don't know if he has a peak like there's i feel like he could have another resurgence again like you said are we in the middle of a cage of like is he gonna get nominated next year like for some crazy out of the no out of the blue role i thought he had a chance to get nominated for pig i thought that was a really quiet intimate and like powerful performance like he still is capable of doing anything so i don't know it's hard to hard to like kind of get a hold of him and just be like yeah this is this is the peak this is what okay. I think is We'll talk about this is. more. We'll talk about this more in context with Decade Decider. Um, yeah. Last thing, unless you got anything else in terms of this, is is this one of the most fitting titles in movie history? Yeah, I don't. I don't, I would agree. All right, goddamn it. <laughs> Why do you do you not? I need some dissension, Nick. All right, I need some drama. Like you know, I don't think Stephen A. and Skip Bayless agreed every time. I think they did agree a lot, and they had to contrive that drama. You know. Yeah, you know, uh, we don't agree a lot. <laughs> we don't agree a lot on much as far as sports go. But I feel like movies, we kind of we kind of hit similar notes. But we're doing fine. I mean, yeah, I, I think that the audience would probably be in general consensus too. Like, what else was this movie going to be called? Charlie Kaufman jerks off for two hours. <laughs> I'm stupid, but I had this epiphany yesterday. I was like, adaptation. Well, yeah, like you're moving a movie or book to the movie, but. Adaptation also is in change and evolution and stuff like that. Yeah. I like how there's a period Charlie. at the end, too. It's final. Yeah. Yeah. yeah good work, Charlie. Um, yeah. On to quotes. Um, we have the obvious. When you walked away, she started making funny things in Kim Kennedy, and it was like they were laughing at me. You didn't know at all. You seemed so happy, which leads to the, of course, that was her business, not mine. You are what you love, not what loves you. That's what I decided a long time ago one of the, the most beautiful passages in the past 30 years like we've we've done some movies with great scripts so far but this might be the movie with the best script we've done so far i don't want to don't want to uh, overstate that because i don't remember all of them that we've done at this point but <laughs> but i i would i would go on a limb and say that this is probably the best script we've done so far i mean it's it's that hellraiser 3 and <laughs> texas chainsaw <laughs> 3 <laughs> Goodfellas is a great script, but that is that is more a movie anchored with the performances and the theatrics of the characters. This movie is just stellar writing. Yeah, I love Texas Chainsaw, Nick. It was mine that love. I owned it. <laughs> Even you didn't have the right to take it away. I can love whatever movie I want. <laughs> yeah, you know Texas Chainsaw does spend a lot of time <laughs> laughing at us too. So, um, next quote. Uh, I thought this was really good. I can see your sadness. It's lovely. Yeah, the 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 indigenous <laughs> fellow there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a great scene. Yeah, um, he starts crying. <laughs> this is what I wanted to say because I can't do it justice. But cages whoever you have. Okay, we open with Roche. He's funny. Okay, he says I love to mutate plants. He says mutation is fun. Um, his manic delivery of that is so good, and yeah. just the idea of like when it cuts to Roche. 
and he's in the car and his mouth opens and you hear Nicolas Cage's voice comes out and it says mutation is fun. <laughs> I don't know, it struck my funny bone. It is a good one. I like I like the part with Donald when uh, they're doing the research for or quote unquote research to try to like get some information on John LaRoche and they open up John LaRoche's porn site and Donald grabs and he says, I'm gonna look at the pornography for research. For research purposes. I've said that in high school before, you know. Um, next sure quote, you have. Susan, I did everything wrong. I want my life back. I want it back before everything got fucked up. I want to be a bee, baby. Really sad is that, line. Is that your, is that your uh, overacting, Colonel Tom Parker? Is that where she lost you a little? A bit of like, I want to be a baby again. Like she's, I mean, it's good for the character. Like she's having a mental break. Yeah. Um, she's just watching a lover get eaten by a crocodile, you know, alligator, whatever. They're the same thing. Um, but no, I, but... Uh, I think she's just going a little overboard. I love, I just love how Charlie says to her, shut up. <laughs> it's so great. It's just perfect after, shut up. <laughs> shut up. Yeah, like he's just so annoyed with her. Um, yeah. Susan, what I came to understand is that change is not a choice. Not for a species of plants and not for me. That's deep. Yeah. Screenplay is so fucking good, dude. I know. The one we've already mentioned of you fat piece of shit, he's dead. I kind of just <laughs> want to quote that or like flip during like football Sundays. Yeah, of, fat um, piece of shit. <laughs> when I'm talking to Mike McCarthy about the Cowboys losing to the Commanders, probably the Sunday, just be like, he's dead. The Cowboys are dead. You know, you have said for the past two years, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we got time. We'll, we'll go off. Yeah, the this is just a small here. intermission. Yeah. You have said for two years now your disdain for Mike McCarthy. Super Bowl champion, 2012, might I add. 2010, sorry. Mike McCarthy. (laughs) A long time ago, 12 years ago. But I have a lot of disdain for this man. The Cowboys keep finding a way to win. Are you going to keep that going and just hope that maybe that pays off dividends in the long run? Like your kind of like negativity winds up fueling the Dallas Cowboys. You know, they're like, we got to put it on. We got to get it on for Josh Shaw. I don't no? like that. You said it like, we got to get it on. Like Jerry Jones, like, we got to get it on for Josh Shaw, boys. Had to get it on, man. No, it's just like, I mean, I don't want to get too long here in the tooth. So I'll just say this. Like, Mike McCarthy's not only a bad head coach, but he doesn't make the roster around the team better to improve it at all, which is maybe his most condemning trait, especially considering he doesn't play co- like, call plays on either side of the ball. He just stands with his arms crossed and looks at the screen when his team gets its 10th penalty of the game. Yeah. Um, and no, he's, he's not... failed to adapt. Nice. And yeah, thank the, you. The, <laughs> the greater problem with Mike McCarthy and why I hate him is that it's not entirely his fault, too. It's that this team is built so poorly around their depth and all the important positions outside of it that they're never going to be good enough to actually win anything meaningful besides one playoff game, if that. Um, and it's just going to be an endless cycle of, like, 10 and 7s to lose in the wild card round. It's a frustrating time of year for you, isn't it? Yeah, That's... and the only hope is, like, they fire McCarthy and get someone who can actually do something to the team. So, Josh, I just want, I just want you to know that I'm here for you. Thank you. I mean, Will Smith's in the playoffs. It's okay. Um final quote now that you got me all down i put it in a chase sequence so the killer flees on horseback with a girl the cops out of the motorcycle and it's like a battle between horses and motors like technology versus the horse technology versus horse 
<laughs> Maggie, this is where Maggie Joan Hall shines. She's like, that is so smart. Like, she's so good in that scene. She's incredible in that role. And what I love about Donald, too, I had in my notes, outside of the Kim Kinnett monologue, every line that Donald had is, has is just an absolute banger. Like, when he's like, oh, sorry, let me get repositioned so I can hear you better. And he's doing his hip flexor exercises. Like, he just is perfect in that role. And as we talked about, like, you brought up a good point with the Oscars, and it's kind of making me think maybe Nick Cage a little bit more. It's just, like, how vastly different those two people are. <laughs> Think about Charlie walking into the house and then Donald being like, I have an idea of helping out of your house. And he goes, As he's hitting his belly and then goes like, I'm going to be a screenwriter like you. <laughs> a little um, pushy, 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 pushy. <laughs> Mom party, said like, it was psychologically taught. Yeah. He's just um, great. What's your favorite quote? I mean, how can you not go with, with the Donald monologue at the end, you know? As a writer, as somebody who wants to maybe write something that's two percent as good as that, I, I mean, you, I can't not take that. There's a bunch of lines in here that I find hilarious, and there's a bunch of sequences I love, like the "shut up" or you know the whole entire <laughs> Donald doing the sex pussy pussy, all that stuff. Like, great, but at the end of the day, that's what this movie is about, and it's one of the most beautiful passages in the past 25, 30 years. Looking back on it, I might do it for the dialogue for class. Ooh. Um, just to be contrarian, I will do what I can understand is that change is not a choice, not for a species of plant and not for me. It's a great line. Yeah. It feels like it's written, uh, by Nicholas Pagelli and said by Russ Cole. That's just why I can't pick a line like that. (laughs) What I can't understand, Marty, is that change is not a choice, not for a species of plant and not for me. (laughs) Another McConaughey. There he is. He's just doing it all. Long time Um, listener, friend of the show. On to Decade Decider. It's time to talk about Cage. Um, Let's do it. You want to take Get out of the here, your boy? Yeah, I'll start it off. And I want to do this a little bit differently because sometimes I feel like we get bogged down by just we're saying like titles of movies. I'm just going to say a couple from each decade and we'll keep it moving. Um, we start off with Nicolas Cage. A few of Francis Ford Coppola, as we said earlier, like just from a family of cinema gold. Starts off... Working in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Pretty fun movie. Not sure it's great. Um, but I think that the first movie that like people knew who Nicolas Cage was was Moonstruck. Kind of his breakthrough performance. Uh, and then we get perfectly to encapsulate what this guy does. He goes Moonstruck 87 and then Raising Arizona. Have you ever seen Raising Arizona? No, I know a lot about it, though, with the Coens. We're doing that on, we're doing that on the cast. It might be the most batshit crazy Coen Brothers movie. And it's like... <laughs> Perfectly encapsulates Nicolas Cage. Like his performance in that movie works in 1987 in Raising Arizona. You could plug and play him into Mandy, and it would be still just <laughs> as effective. You really kind of get the whole landscape here with like Moonstruck, the the handsome suave, like emotionally aware guy, but also yes. Raising Arizona, the batch um, off the walls, crazy manic energy. So uh, I think the 80s kind of really shows you right out of the gate that this was not somebody who was interested in taking roles to be famous, but to take roles to do things that were risky. And do what um, he wants, yeah. Yeah, and also, this is a guy who has an absurd amount of screen credits. Like, I was scrolling through his IMDb and my fingers were getting sore. So, like, we did have to limit <laughs> it a little bit here. We go into the 90s, and let's talk about just these four movies right here. Leaving Las Vegas, he wins his first Academy Award. Uh, a movie you can probably watch once and be good just because it is so sad and came true. 
Uh, are you familiar with that movie at all, Josh? Really? Um, yeah, again, playing a writer, uh, alcoholic writer, who literally goes to Las Vegas to drink himself to death. Winds up falling in love with a prostitute. Uh, very dark. Yeah, very dark. The writer wrote the book and then shortly thereafter took his own life. So that's a tough hang. But uh him his first Academy and is his first nomination. So first and only best actor. Uh, then we go on to The Rock, which is a great movie. Sean Connery. Still don't understand why he's in that movie. The Rock. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think everybody has some great memories of this movie. My favorite memory is the end when Nicolas Cage jams the green, like, toxic gas or whatever it is into that guy's mouth. I don't know why, but that scene has just, like, lived in my head since I was a little kid. I was like, yeah, Nicolas Cage is a badass. Just great hair in that movie. (laughs) Yeah. But then we go to Con Air, though. We go to Con Air with the maximum hair, with the maximum flow. Uh, this movie sucks. I don't like this movie at all. I know that this is a, is kind of like a cult classic. A lot of people enjoy it. I don't like it at all. I don't think it's good. <laughs> but Nicolas Cage has got maximum flowage. Uh, face Off. He took his face off. And this is a movie that I enjoy, but is a prime example of Nicolas Cage being absolutely absurd in a movie where it does not require him to be. Like, the things he's doing in this movie do not fit with an action movie. Do not like, traditionally seem like a choice that an actor would make in them. <laughs> that they work and they are interesting. And that is the epitome of Nicolas Cage. Often good, often crazy, always interesting. He's just here for himself. So, yeah. you know, leave him be. Yeah. Uh, and then we go into the 2002 with Adaptation, National Treasure, Ghost Rider. Uh, this is just money, 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 money. Like, this is... This is what I wanted to talk about, actually. <laughs> Where when you look at the first half of his career, it is a lot of indies or dramas. Valley Girl, Moonstruck, Raising Arizona, Leaving Las Vegas. And then Adaptation, I think, is really the, maybe not peak of his acting powers, but it's like the real exclamation mark of like, hey, I can get nominated for two different movies. I'm one of the better actors in Hollywood. And then there's the sharp turn of action and odd movies of National Treasure, The Wicker Man, <laughs> Ghost Rider, Ghost Rider 2, Kick-Ass, and he kind of falls out of Hollywood's favor at that point in an interesting way, I thought. Um, and I don't know, I, I one thing I've kind of noticed a lot more the more we do the show is the way that the prominent big-name actor slowly becomes an action star or something like that as he gets into his late 30s, 40s, because those roles aren't going to be there for much longer, and those are the paydays. And I think it's kind of a sad comment on the, like, the structure that the Hollywood system is. Yes, I agree, and I also think that it's just like any other job. You might get into it with the most pure intentions and want to do things that are meaningful and like can be trans- transcendent for change, Eventually, like, <laughs> the dollar sign wins out. And I know just from reading about Nicolas Cage, he is quite, like his characters, eccentric and lives an exquisite lifestyle. It costs money to do. So I don't know if this was maybe a time period where it was like, okay, time to make some money because I'm spending a bunch and I don't want to speak on that because I have no clue. Right. Um, but just, like, some of these choices here definitely are, like, like you said, you know, all right, well, I'm getting to my mid-30s. Like, I'm not going to look like this forever. And yeah. it's getting harder and harder <laughs> to do. So 
let's let's get like, let's get after it. Yeah, let's yeah. get after it. Let's get this back. And you know, some of these are good. I enjoy the first National Treasure. Yeah, I, I think Wicker Man's fun. <laughs> yeah, Wicker Man's not. Matchstick Man is actually really good, and that's where I would say it completely it doesn't completely end. But I would say that's the last of. Uh, okay, let's try and like take myself a little bit more seriously. Performances, but again, it's hard to say that because he's crazy in all of these. Like. <laughs> He's just a crazy fella, you know, and that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, on of the twenty tens, like this is again where Cage goes full cage of like Joe, which is a good movie, um, I think. Um Mandy into the Spider Verse. He does a lot of like straight to D V D movies at this point. Um made a resurgence year of Pig and the Unbearable Way to Massive Talent. I think we're in a good time. He's in a movie playing Dracula soon. Ooh, that would be interesting. I don't know if you saw that. <laughs> oh, I didn't. Um, it's called Renfield. Um, cool. Yeah, so I don't know. Like, where, where are you going with this? Tough. It's really tough because it's so varied, right? But I think probably just because he is someone who was famous enough while we were young and alive to, like, Remember when Ghost Rider came out? Remember when National Treasure came out? Stuff like that, you know. Even like the Con Air, the Rock, Face Off, those were always on HBO or, you know, Go Time. Like you, you would see those movies. So we have a pretty strong relationship with them. It almost bleeds. Like I want to take like late '90s, early 2000s, but I'm gonna take 2000s. I am too, actually. Yeah. I think Adaptation is just such a great movie. I think you can have fun with a lot of these. I think Ghost Rider is an awful movie, but you could come around to have fun with it almost in a Texas Chainsaw way. Um, just Show Treasure is a, a solid blockbuster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he does shut a lot. Yeah. <laughs> oh! 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 <laughs> He's turning into him. Yeah. yeah. He has a great screaming sequence in Mandy, too. Like when he, <laughs> if you've ever seen that. Great screamer. He's a great screamer. Not as great as Leo, but he's a great one. So, yeah, I'm going to take the 2000s. Um, yeah, I, I would too. So on to Meryl Streep. I, we could do a lightning round on her, honestly, because I feel like if you know Meryl Streep, you know the story here. I hit us just with the goat, you know, from yeah. the deer hunter to Kramer Kramer, which is like her third or fourth, fourth major role to be. <laughs> yes. And it just established herself as one of the greatest actresses in Hollywood from like the jump mm-hmm. is a very like Florence Pugh-esque rise, I feel. Um, never has had a dec- never has had a decade of bad work like never has not been in demand like <laughs> never has had a decade where she's not nominated for an academy award it's <laughs> At almost least twice of, yeah which is insane and is also sad because like we've talked about on this podcast like it's an unfortunate thing that she is the only two female lead for a lot of this time period like that's just kind of a frustrating thing but Hey man, she's friggin' fantastic. She's the best, probably one of the best living actors that we have, and doesn't get held in the same regard as Pacino, De Niro, or Hoffman, but came up in the same class with those guys. Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, I for decades I just wanted to put all of them as far as taking one. Let's just <laughs> but, do it. You know, let's just. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna take the '70s because I love Kramer vs. Kramer, Deer Hunter, Manhattan. Like those three right there, just like those might be in my top 50 movies of all time. So, yeah. I would go with the same opinion too, just because I think um, I think they're really heavy movies, but I think they are some of the best work you've seen in a long, long time. Yes. Uh, wrapping this up, Charlie Kaufman. 
very very small list uh we're at i think eight or nine i want to say you know credits here being john malkovich 1999 watching the 2000s with human nature which he's a writer on adaptation confessions of a dangerous mind two movies in two years way to boy way to go charlie uh eternal sunshine of the spotless my 2004 which is just uh a forever movie in the internet age yes yeah that that movie's gotten a second life of how good it is i guess if that makes sense Cinedoche, new york Question. I didn't know how to pronounce that. Shinoke, I'm going to say we're right. All right. <laughs> Animalesia, which I've never seen, and I'm thinking of any things which I still need to see. Um, just real quick about Charlie, I would just like to talk about, like, from Schenectady, New York. Sure. Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah. Uh, onwards. And even before that, somebody who was very interested not only in deconstructing the writing process, but, like, interesting things in film like the animation animalise is really cool the premise of Schenectady New York with the whole like city that Philip Seymour Hoffman character builds the study of relationships and dreams in like cognitive dissonance and internal sunshine and spotless mind is beautiful but yeah just a little shout out for the dog yeah I mean Charlie's just um I want to see like a, a picture deal with Netflix I, I thought I thought it was like a new collaboration with them I mean, that very well could be, because Netflix is prone to do that, and I respect them. Uh, and if to piggyback off of that, Blonde just was released a couple of days ago to less than stellar reviews, but I don't know anybody else who's given Andrew Dominic, you know, $28 million to make a three-hour epic about Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe. Monroe. Yeah. yeah. I think for this, it's just, uh, I think it's the 2000s, at least. It's the me. 2000s. I've seen every single one of those movies besides... Uh, something new york i've only seen bits and pieces of uh and i love every single one of them uh, yeah and like my relationship with them has changed throughout time but i still find myself rewatching adaptation i just rewatched confessions of a dangerous mind not too long ago i love sam rockwell he might be my favorite working actor right now wow yeah. <laughs> i want to go on a whim and say that i got some questions though real quick so like I, the audience can't see this but you've been bouncing a lot the last second half what's what's going on here I'm just getting a little, I'm getting a little, like, I had my, my cup of coffee. I'm just moving my legs. I'm not doing oh, okay. anything crazy. Yeah. All right. I mean, I'm not accusing you of doing anything crazy. I was just like, this guy's bouncing a lot every time I look at the screen here. I'm not pulling the Charlie Kaufman on you. <laughs> <laughs> and on uh, that note, folks, fun. I think we've hit everything. Thank you again for doing this with me, Josh. Always have a great time. This was a good pick by you. Like, rate, subscribe. Tell us how much you love us. Tell us how much you hate us. What's next week? So, uh, next week is The Graduate, but real oh, quick, boy. I just want to give a little shout out. Now, 99% of our listener base is based in the United States. God bless you, USA. 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 <laughs> Love this country here on the Road Dogs podcast. You won't hear a bad word about it. Well, you might. Um, but you want to know where our other 1% is based, Josh? Wait, there's actually... Oh. Yeah. We got 1% in Turkey, baby. I want to oh. give a shout out. I want to give a shout out to all our fans over there in Turkey. We love y'all. <laughs> Oh, dogs out.